Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to A History of Europe, Key Battles podcast. This is The Great Northern War and the Battle of Portava, part two. On what foundation stands the warrior's pride? How justice hopes let Swedish Charles decide. A frame of adamant, a sword of fire... No dangers fright him, and no labours tire. So begins a poem by the English writer Samuel Johnson on King Charles XII of Sweden, a character who fascinated many in his time. His legacy is much debated, seen by many as one of the greatest military leaders of the 18th century, yet to others as reckless and foolhardy. Charles XII's father... Charles XI was King of Sweden from 1660 to 1697, in a period of relative peace. On his accession, he was just four, and after a long regency, was crowned in 1675. From the beginning of Charles XI's personal role, he faced challenges. Since that same year, 1675, his troops were defeated in Germany by Brandenburg, Prussia, and then attacked also by Denmark. The support of Sweden's main ally, France, at the peace settlement of 1679, allowed her to escape without serious loss. But her vulnerability and dependence on France was made all too apparent. As a consequence, following the turbulent years of Gustavus Adolphus and Charles X, Charles XI's foreign policy had been to carefully avoid involvement in warfare on the continent as long as Swedish interests were not threatened. He therefore declined to get involved directly in the Nine Years' War. Instead, he devoted much of his energies to the work of internal consolidation and reform of the administration, army and navy. He also increased the power of the crown in relation to the nobility, so that when Charles XII inherited the throne in 1697 at the age of 15, he inherited a monarchy that was more absolute and stronger than it had been for a long time. Sweden's main enemy in the Eastern Baltic in the 17th century had been Poland. However, since the 1670s, the Poles had been absorbed with conflicts in the south with the Ottomans and the Russians. Decision-making in the Polish state had become dysfunctional, 
as the magnates asserted strong power and influence over their elective king. Jan Sobieski, in spite of military victories earlier in his reign, became an increasingly ineffective leader as he grew older. When he died, his son Jakob was expected by many to succeed him, but instead the elector of Saxony, Frederick Augustus, won the election with a mixture of bribes and threats and by agreeing to convert to Catholicism. The personal union of Poland, Lithuania and Saxony offered favourable prospects for both partners, according to the author Norman Davis. Both were threatened by their common neighbour, Brandenburg, Prussia. As an elector of the Holy Roman Emperor, Augustus II, as he became known, wielded significant influence. He had a distinguished military reputation and had the nickname of The Strong for his great physical strength and also due to fathering some 300 children. Sweden's most persistent enemy was her closest neighbour, Denmark. While the Danes still retained Norway, they had lost control of the sound and appeared permanently weakened. The Danish leadership had never accepted their losses to Sweden earlier in the century, and also felt the country was being squeezed from the south by Sweden's German possessions in Holstein and Schleswig. They therefore sought to take advantage of the accession of a young new Swedish king. In the year 1698, Christian V of Denmark formed an alliance with Augustus II, who for his part hoped to acquire territory in Livonia from Sweden. Danish enthusiasm for war was not dulled by the accession of a new king, Frederick IV, in 1699. Augustus also met Peter the Great, the young new Tsar of Russia, when, between colossal drinking bouts, they held discussions about an anti-Swedish alliance. When the Russians concluded a peace with the Ottomans in the year 1699, they were ready to formally join a three-way alliance against Sweden. Only one potential ally declined to join. Frederick of Brandenburg was keen to drive the Swedes from Pomerania, but he was a cautious man, and for the time being preoccupied with his coronation as king in Prussia, and with the coming conflict with France. Nevertheless, Sweden was now confronted with a long-feared three-front war. Danish troops moved into Schleswig-Holstein, coordinating their move with an attack by the army of Augustus II in the spring of 1700. The Saxons took the town of Dunamunde on the river Daugava, whilst the Danes besieged the town of Tuning. The Russians made their move against Sweden in August, by which time the Saxons began a siege of Riga. The Allies did not expect a long war, as the odds seemed entirely in their favour. King Charles XII of Sweden responded decisively against the unprovoked aggression by first targeting Denmark. Having promised to back the maritime powers, i.e. England and the Dutch Republic, in upholding the Treaty of Rysvik against Louis XIV, he was able to call on their support to uphold the recent Alatona Agreement, which the Danes had broken by their invasion. 
On the 13th of July, the Swedish fleet evaded a slightly larger Danish force with a daring manoeuvre along the Swedish coast and joined up with an Anglo-Dutch fleet before landing a 10,000-strong army on Zealand and marching on Copenhagen. Faced by a blockade of his capital and pressure from the maritime powers, Frederick quickly capitulated and already by mid-August had signed the Peace of Travendal, which reconfirmed the status quo as per the Altona Agreement. Charles was concerned that if the Danish fleet was not destroyed, they could still pose a threat to Sweden, but the maritime powers were determined that there would be no retribution, and that peace be restored as soon as possible in the Baltic Sea, and so purposefully limited their support. Still, Charles could now turn his attention to the relief of Riga. The authors Robert Bidelow and Ian Jeffries are highly critical of Augustus II for launching a war which they saw as motivated more for his own selfish reasons rather than the good of his subjects. He attacks Sweden, they write in the vain hope of bolstering his lacklustre status, an act of folly which proved devastating to the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth. Their campaign against Riga was very poorly executed. Without naval support, the Saxons were unable to cut off supplies to the city from the north. Also, an administrative oversight meant that their ammunition was mostly of the wrong calibre for the heavy siege guns, and the siege was raised on the 29th of September, never having come anywhere close to success. At the same time as the Saxons were entering winter quarters, the Russian army, at least 35,000 strong, were beginning their bombardment of the city of Nava. The Russians were far better organised than the Saxons, led by General Boris Sheremetev. As they were constructing their siege works, Charles was leading a Swedish army into Estonia much earlier than anticipated. In spite of the Russians laying waste to the land leading to Nava, Charles and his 11,000-strong army marched with great speed and surprised the enemy by launching straight into battle against a force more than three times as large. Peter the Great had left the siege the day before, ostensibly to organise reinforcements, and not anticipating so sudden an attack. Under cover of a snowstorm, the Swedes smashed through the Russian line, breaking it into two parts before rolling it up. Charles himself fought in the front line and had his horse shot from under him. The Russians were routed, including those who drowned in a desperate stampede across the river. They lost 8,000 men and 145 guns. Very few could have expected with what great skill the new teenage king of Sweden had reacted to his neighbour's attacks on his realm. The Swedish army also re-established their reputation as one of Europe's most formidable military forces. Reinforcements from Sweden in the spring brought the strength of their army to about 24,000. But this was not enough to take on both Russia and Poland simultaneously. Charles XII now had to decide whether to pursue Peter or Augustus, or to seek peace. 
With justification, Charles trusted neither of them, so came to the conclusion that the only way to preserve his realm intact was a campaign of intimidation. The choice he made was to focus all his efforts against Augustus. In July 1701, he followed up on his stunning victory at Narva by defeating a Saxon army and occupying the region of Courland, the peninsula to the east of Riga. He then headed south to confront a Saxon army, with which some additional Russian contingents numbered some 29,000 men and were entrenched the other side of the river Daugava, close to Riga. Bad weather ruined the Swedish plans to attack instantly, and the assault had to be postponed. But when they could begin, the Swedes crossed the river, with Charles once more on the front line. The battle was hard fought and lasted several hours. The Saxons attempted to drive the Swedes back, but Charles's forces showed great discipline under heavy fire, and eventually it was Augustus's men who were forced to withdraw. After the battle, Charles laid siege to Dunamunde and also pursued the retreating Saxon forces. The Saxons retreated to neutral pressure and so left all of Kurland open for Charles, who was able to seize the initiative. Augustus's failure to take Riga left him in a difficult political position and encouraged his political opponents in the Commonwealth. These included leading nobles with close link to the Sobieski family, who were still smarting from the failure of Jacob to secure the throne, and also another leading family in Lithuania, the Sapiejas. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at UH1.com. The crumbling of Augustus's authority seemed like a golden opportunity for Charles to avenge the Saxon invasion and to permanently weaken his enemy. When the Swedes invaded the Commonwealth, they met little resistance. The Polish army numbered barely 13,000, and the situation was even worse in Lithuania, where after the Revolt of the Sapiejas, Augustus was left with a rump of only about 4,000 men on whom he could rely. 
Charles occupied Vilnius, capital of Lithuania, in April 1702, and in an undefended Warsaw in May, and then marched west to pursue the Polish army. Charles, with an army of 12,000, encountered a combined Polish-Saxon army at Krzysztof, a wooded area in south-central Poland, approximately twice the size. In his book on the Northern Wars, Robert Frost writes how although the Swedish army is often regarded as Western, it did not fight as Western armies were supposed to fight. Quote, Throughout the 17th century, European armies had built their strategy and tactics around firepower and fortifications. The improvements in firearms technology, which saw the replacement of the matchlock by the flintlock, the introduction of the bayonet, which enabled armies to dispense with pikemen, and the increased discipline, which could be instilled into the new regular armies, ensured that gunpowder's role was more important than ever. The increased rate of fire by flintlocks meant the experienced infantry, who had time to form up, could no longer be broken by cavalry. Yet Charles obstinately refused to follow the fashion. He had a healthy contempt for firepower, placing far greater trust in raw steel. Swedish infantry regulations played down the role of firepower and stressed the importance of infantry attack. Salvos were to be delivered as close as possible to the enemy, and attacks were to be pressed home with maximum vigour. It was not that Charles failed to appreciate the importance of firepower, but used it selectively as he saw fit, and although the technology of firearms had improved, they were still not always reliable, and also caused battle plans to emphasise the defensive over the offensive. Charles believed in speed of movement and the seizure of the initiative. For if cavalry were no longer capable of breaking ordered formations of infantry, a disciplined, aggressive charge by well-drilled, motivated infantry with high morale could achieve what cavalry could not. Charles's tactics once more proved successful at the Battle of Krzysztof on the 8th of July 1702. The Saxon army was surprised by the arrival of the Swedes, but still managed to form a strong position with an impassable swamp on their left flank, with a stream running through the boggy valley between the two armies, making a frontal attack risky. Charles, however, was not one to decline a challenge, and ordered a daring manoeuvre. He strengthened his left wing and attempted a bold envelope movement on the enemy right. The Swedes launched their attack at two o'clock in the afternoon and launched an assault on the Polish flank, but the commander of the assault, the Duke of Holstein-Gottorp, was killed early on and the advance halted. The Polish cavalry counter-attacked, but the Swedes held firm against two onslaughts, while the weakened centre and right flank beat back a Saxon thrust across the marshy valley, which now offered them a measure of protection. When the Polish cavalry withdrew after their failed assault, the main Swedish force turned in on the exposed Saxon flank. The Saxons found themselves hemmed in by marshland to their left and rear, and were in danger of being routed. But they fought with great determination and were able to withdraw in reasonable formation. They lost 2,000 and 1,000 were captured, but it could have been far worse. The Swedes lost some 300 dead and five to 800 wounded, and young Charles was fast gaining a reputation as a great commander 
and his army as a real force to be reckoned with. Not everything was going Sweden's way. Charles left insufficient troops to defend Livonia, an opportunity immediately grasped by Peter the Great. Already in December 1701, the Russian army inflicted a defeat on a Swedish force at Erastfer. Then in July 1702, the Russians overwhelmed a smaller Swedish army at Hamoshof and so took control of most of Livonia and Estonia outside the main cities. In October, they seized the town of Nürtebourg, where the river Neva flowed out of Lake Ladoga. Peter, keen to gain a secure hold over a stretch of the Baltic coastline, decided he would build there a brand new city, St. Petersburg, and make it his capital. In June, the city of Dorpat, now Tartu in Estonia, fell, followed by Nava in August. None of this, however, dissuaded Charles XII to change focus from his attack on Poland-Lithuania. Encouraged by the collapse of the enemy's defences, there his ambitions extended towards the overthrow of Augustus. The Polish and Baltic peoples suffered greatly as the war proceeded. As Peter Engden describes in his book on the Battle of Poltava, quote, maintenance of the Swedish army depended on contributions, meaning in plain language that a swarm of steel-armed locusts ate straight through those regions it descended on. A population living on the edge of destitution before the war began was robbed of life's necessities, and to a certain extent, money with the aid of threats, fire and torture. A bitter guerrilla war frequently raged around the Swedish army, and the Polish population did not scruple to slaughter isolated Swedish soldiers. This was countered by the Swedes with ruthless severity. One instance of the Swedish acts of outrage was the massacre of Nijava. On August 1703, this town south of Thorn was burnt to the ground and its innocent citizens hanged as reprisal for an attack on Swedish troops. The Russians, meanwhile, plundered and killed at least as much as their Swedish counterparts. In one of his reports to Peter the Great, General Sheremetev described his latest ravages. Quote, I have had the men out capturing and plundering in every direction. Nothing has escaped. Everything is destroyed or burnt. The soldiers have carried off several thousand men, women and children, as well as 20,000 drafts horse and cattle. End quote. The Russian army deported large numbers of the Livonian population. Officers appropriated many of them for use as serf labour on their estates. Others were sold like cattle in dirty marketplaces in Russia or ended up as slaves among Tatars or Turks. Charles won further victories in 1703 and the next year persuaded the Polish assembly to deprive Augustus of his throne and to elect instead the 27-year-old Polish nobleman Stanislaw Leszczynski. In the next years took place a Polish civil war with two claimants to the throne, neither of whom with much of an army. Leszczynski supported by Charles and Augustus by Peter the Great. Civil war also raged in Lithuania, 
where a faction opposed to the Swedish-backed Sapieha family called for assistance from Muscovy. Peter was happy to intervene, since he was able to cut off the Swedish army from the Baltic provinces and also to provide the Russians with a base in the Commonwealth. Charles was compelled to devote the autumn of 1705 and the spring of 1706 to expelling Russian troops from Lithuania. Once that had been accomplished, Charles returned his main objective. The invasion of Saxony by September was nearly at Leipzig. Augustus conceded defeat and sought peace. By the Treaty of Altranstad, 1706, he renounced his claim to the throne of Poland and broke off his ties with Russia. The terms required a large portion of Polish trade to be diverted through Swedish-controlled Riga, and a newly built Polish port had to be destroyed so that it could not compete with those of Sweden. Although the Poles were not compelled to concede any territory, it was an unpalatable peace that the Swedes forced on them. Charles XII had finally won the campaign against Augustus, but it had taken much longer than at first anticipated. Also, his obstinate refusal to accept nothing less than Augustus's deposition was a clear interference in the Commonwealth's internal politics and caused much consternation. This played into Peter the Great's hands, who exploited the divisions and gained many Poles and Lithuanians to his side. Also, crucially, the war in the Commonwealth had given Peter the Great time to strengthen his army and to push back the Swedes in the Baltic, including the rapid establishment of a new city at St. Petersburg. At this point, the War of Spanish Succession was in full swing. The Grand Alliance were concerned that Charles would come to the aid of France or to fight the Austrian Habsburgs to protect Protestant rights in Silesia. The Duke of Marlborough met the Swedish king, who was persuaded not to get involved. Instead, Charles XII now turned his attention against Russia, and so started the next stage of the Great Northern War. It's always great to hear from you, either on the Facebook page, Twitter, at History Europe KB, KB for Key Battles, or you can write to me directly, Carl, that's C A R L, at historyeurope.net. If you'd like to support this podcast, you can do so at patreon.com slash historyeurope, where you can sign up for $3 a month to gain some extra material. I hope you can join me next time for the next part of the Great Northern War. Until then, all the best and goodbye. powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. 
The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most. But if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com.